Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. All right, glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Is that what you guys say? You got it. Glory forever. Mike makes me do the same introduction when we're in Rome. And I'm just joking. He always okay. is complaining about <laughs> it. So, Catholic Stuff You Should Know, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Father John. Father, Father Michael, Michael Lachlan. And Father Nathan Goble here, and we are in probably our most beautiful uh, <laughs> setting, you know. Yeah. And uh, here in Colorado, but unfortunately, um, there probably won't be a lot of banter today because uh, we got to deal with a very difficult topic. Yeah. I think it's actually appropriate. We had people cleaning the, uh, or actually not cleaning, but redoing the studio at my house. But I thought, well, why not have it in the church and be near the Eucharist, be near the icons, be near the house of God, and so we're literally sitting in the very front of my church, Holy Protection in Denver, in front of the icons, the Eucharist, we've got candles lit, we've got an icon of a, the ladder of divine ascent sitting on the tetrapod, which is not the season for it at all, but since it had an, it is an icon of the, the 30 steps that St. John Climacus taught to this fellow monks, that uh, the 30 steps of salvation and holiness, and it shows uh, a bunch of demons pulling the monks, priests, and bishops off of the ladder and dragging them down to hell. I thought that might be an appropriate fitting icon, yeah. a fitting icon to have uh, as we discuss this scandal that just happened. So it's not been an easy uh, week to be in the Roman collar, uh, as you guys know, and we've had some, um, I think, some really beautiful conversations together as brothers over uh, meals and uh, over the last week. But I was, uh, I was in the backcountry and uh, doing some climbing, and it was great, and then I turned my phone on and came mm-hmm. back into civilization on Wednesday, and that's when I saw the news and wanted to throw my phone in the river and run back up into the mountains, and, uh, but yeah, it was like... Smacked in the face with it. Yeah, and so uh, what, we're, what we are kind of dealing with right now and what we want to speak on today, of course, is the, uh, the most recent scandals um, that really began um, with the allegations and the resignation of Cardinal McCarrick back on the 20th of June, I believe and have uh, since kind of precipitated this um, rather massive and destructive uh, and really disgusting um, revelation of uh, more abuse, more cover-up, uh, and more scandal that mm-hmm. we're now kind of in the fist of, and frankly, probably not uh, out, of, out yeah. of the woods here yet. So, Yeah, the, uh, the Pennsylvania grand jury report was, was not in any way tied to the Cardinal McCarrick scandal. They, they were two separate things, but kind of hit the church all at once and um you know the the Carl McCarrick scandal actually adds a whole other dimension to it I don't know if you know we can certainly get into that as as well what that is but um I was thinking you know what what are our impressions I mean we were we don't have any abuse victims on where it's just the you know three of the four priests that you already know and and what we what we've heard what we felt and and how we see the church moving forward to try to bring you guys some hope um so yeah, I mean, my first impression was as I was praying through this, and I actually read most of the grand jury report. I skipped a couple of parts that didn't seem, um, you know, that I want to go back to later on. But um, the grand jury report seems like it just added a whole new dimension to what we all already knew about abuse in the church, um, because it went into just horrible graphic detail about what abuse looks like. I think any of us said in the church, any of us in the church would have said that that young people in the church have been the victims of abuse, but that, that word becomes so overused. The, uh, the grand jury report then reports what abuse looks like. And I've been talking to some victims and finding out, is that, is that a good thing? And there was 
that that graphic detail about what some in the church have suffered at the hands of others in the church is that a good thing and i've come to the conclusion myself after thinking praying and talking to people about it that you know i think the abuse victims have they know this stuff happens they they know the the depths of depravity that some human beings and those in the authority in the church and what other human beings namely priests bishops etc what they can do and and there's I, I actually think I've come to the conclusion that in the end this will be a good thing it, it's, it's I think Cardinal Donardo in his USCCB report said something like um, actually I have it here um, well he said the result was that scores of beloved children of God were abandoned to face the abuse of power alone and I think that's one of the greatest evils of this is that is that the the isolation of those who are abused the the fact that they were they felt, how do you explain what happened to you? Do you even want to explain what happened to you? And kind of the grand jury report allowed the, the horrible details of this evil to be shared with the world. And I've gotten about 50-50 from abuse victims, some that say that it's obviously really hard reading those things because they suffered many things like that. And they don't think it should have come out because it just kind of reopens wounds and it, and it causes greater scandal. And I've heard others to say for the first time I've seen in a newspaper or on the computer what I thought was completely unique to me, you know, and that these, these horrible things had happened. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic of, of what, what we can do as human beings and what the church can do as the body of Christ in, in moving forward um, with these revelations so that what was felt is even though those of us who have not been abused can never really feel that, but at least the, the words are out there and, and, and the, the depths of the depravity and the levels of abuse are out there so that people know exactly what, we're, what human beings and, and these specific men, what they are capable of. Yeah. I am, yeah, I'm sorry. It's the first time I'm hearing my voice with the audio kind of weird. Anyways, um, it also the, echoes uh, in the church. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that the scripture passage of what you what you hear whispered will be proclaimed on the housetops. Yeah, um, is is important in this situation because these victims wanted uh, their story to be told, and by allowing their story to be told, uh, they shame their abusers, and the abusers can't hide behind the the word abuse, yeah. which could be like it was an inappropriate touch or glance or grooming or something like that. Th- these were graphic, violent, depraved details of unspeakable acts that when they're spoken in public bring an additional level of shame, not to the victims, uh, but to the priests and especially those who covered up these acts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that there was a there was a desire. I mean, many in the church did know these things, obviously, because they they had heard about them. But there is a desire to hide the details. I mean, I, I only found out recently that I didn't know this. Whenever I might have even shared this before, but women could not serve on a jury until what the seventies or something like that. And the reason for that was in, in the United States. And the reason for that was because I initially thought, well, we we didn't trust women. We didn't think women would, would, you know, that's what I thought society was, and that's why they wouldn't let it. But the, the reason why women could not serve on a jury until so incredibly late, in, in my opinion, was because they didn't want women to have to, to 
receive and to experience the horrible things going on in the world. And if you're on a jury, you're hearing these horrible details. And and now this grand jury report is open to the world, and it's like, and we all are stunned by by it, and 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 obviously angered by it, and, and frustrated by it. But again, I, I do think in the end, these details coming out will will be a good thing. And and once we recover from this and, and continue to move forward, um, we'll be glad that it came out and and was put out the way it was. I have uh, gone through the full gamut of emotions, and uh, it's actually kind of hard to do this podcast without uh, relying on profanity, which has been uh, the temptation to make this explicit, uh, because, yeah, I I swing between uh, rage and uh, and then just sadness, just completely. I feel broken uh, in some ways by this. In 2003, when the uh, original scandal uh, the spotlight scandal came out. I was in my first year of seminary. I don't know if you guys were, you guys were, but I remember I was, being yeah. really affected by it. But it was more of a, um, it was more of a call to renewal. It was like, all right, you know, we have to rebuild the church, and um, so there was kind of a, but there was always a sense of like the shadow of this is going to carry over our lifetime, right? And something about this one though is. Uh, it's just it feels more defeating and more uh, frustrating. I think part of it is the nature, like you're saying, the graphic nature of of everything. Uh, it's become more real, and I think the the way that the church has become even more discredited in the eyes of modern man now, um, just at a point of just complete mockery. Um, yeah. And we don't have to face this. The people who have to face it are our friends who go to work every day, who are in the hospitals yeah. and in the schools, and they have to deal with. Uh, they have to really suffer it, I think. I mean, we have, we have to suffer it in our own way as priests, but I, um, I found that um, the consolation came, though, um, from actually getting into a couple of things that I just kind of, and I won't read these, but uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 appeared on our, uh, on our Roman uh, Missal this week. We were talking about it this morning. And uh, chapter 16 of Ezekiel, Goebel actually preached on this today. Um, is the story of God um, kind of finding this this um, young person and then kind of in their poverty and misery and bringing them and adorning them in beauty and then espousing himself to them and it's the story of Israel right mm-hmm. and then but then the scary thing is how it plays out so he says you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot because of your renown lavished your harlotries on any passerby and then at the end behold I will gather all your lovers all from whom you took pleasure, all those whom you loved, and those whom you loathed, I will gather them from every side, and then basically they're going to kill you. Um, they're going to destroy you. Hmm. And you're going to be destroyed by it. And so this kind of scouring that the church is going through um, and this purification, I think, is connected to, well, it's just, it helped me to contextualize it, to realize this has always been the problem um, since the beginning. Um, but to see it in light of salvation history, to see it in light of kind of what has God done with humanity? Um, and, uh, and just to kind of, I don't know, kind of re- replace it back in, in the story of salvation because left to itself and left to the media and left to grand jury reports, it's just, it feels meaningless and, and completely, it's just literally insane. I mean, yeah. some of the stuff, you know, that we're reading and yeah. seeing now. So, You know, I, I think that the church... And I think, again, I think this is a good thing. I, I think the church will now always walk with a limp. I mean, we'll, we'll always have, the, the body of Christ will always have something that will remind us of this. And the image I thought about, like, moving forward, like, how do we, how do we handle this? 
as those who are innocent, and how do we handle this as those who are guilty? How do we handle it as a church full of those who are innocent and those who are guilty together? And and the kind of the confusion, the paradox that that brings. But, you know, the, the image I thought of is you hear these horrible stories of, of a parent who, you know, backs out of the driveway and runs over their own child, you know, or something like this, something that is something that, 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 that will, will never leave that parent, you know. And I think this is, in a sense, how I feel. I, I, I had somebody tell me one time and their, their, their child did die, and their child died in a way that was, you know, that, that others could look at them and could blame them for it. And, you know, who knows where the blame can be ultimately put, but, but they wrote in, in kind of this reflection, they said, I will always be a parent whose child died in a way that it can be blamed on me. In other words, this is never going to leave me. And I think that's a good thing. You know, the, the, it's a good thing for the church to always walk with a limp now. It's, always, it's a good thing for the church to always say, you know, we, we have no reason to exalt ourselves beyond what we are. We're the body of Christ. Right now, the body of Christ is back on the cross, naked, bleeding, um, you know, struggling. And, and we, in a sense, we can't forget that. We, we, look at, we look at the crucifix every time we walk into a church. We see Christ crucified up there, and, and, and yet we've still kind of become this, this, the humans in the church, this body that's, that's completely aloof and kind of unaware of the, thing, of, the, of the things that we are capable of, the, the great good that we're capable of and the great evil that we're capable of. And, and we are capable of immense, immense good because we are the body of Christ, we're all baptized into that, but along with that goes the capacity for, of course, immense evil. And I, I think it's, it's, it'll be a good thing for us to have a reminder. You know, I was trying to think of, and I put a post out asking for ideas about penance and reparation. And, and I, you know, I kept on going through these things in my head. What, what does that look like for penance and reparation? What does it look like to say, I am, I am proudly a member of a wounded body that allows that allows people, human beings, to be in it that are capable of such evil and have committed such evil. And, and I can stand, of course, shamed because of it. But I can also be proud because I, I know what it, that it, at the heart it's just the body of Christ with, with its head, um, and I, in the head that is Christ himself. And I, I think, you know, I need to alter my life so that I, do, that I never forget and I can actually do penance and reparations. You know, whatever the, those alterings might look like, um, I, if I p- try to put myself, which of course I can't, it's impossible, but I think it's a good practice anyway to put myself in the place of one who abused by the church. And the tragedy is, is that in the abuse, I'm sure people feel incredibly isolated and alone. They can't explain to people. Nobody will ever understand what they went through. And yet even other people that were abused, even they, it's like, it's like two parents trying to discuss uh, miscarriage. You know, they just don't understand how each other mourns. Uh, victims, I don't think, un- understand each other and exactly the depths of the, of the depravity and how they, they came away from that. But, you know, in this, this feeling, I think when they want to return to the church, when they want to see the church, I almost think the temptation is to say, I can't rely on other human beings. I literally just need to say it's just me and Jesus. But that, even that is so isolating. They go from being isolated in abuse to, to the feeling of return to the church. Like, I cannot return to the church because I can't trust people yet. I can't trust priests yet, bishops yet. I can't do this. So I, in a sense, have to isolate myself even within the church. And, and as we know, isolation is, is at the heart of evil. These evil acts cause isolation. And in the church, how do we not make it so that the return to the church has to also be one of isolation? Mm-hmm. You know, just one, one, I'm not saying we had to answer that question, but, but what, what, how, do, how does somebody come back to the church if God willing they do, and I understand when people don't, but if they do come back to the church, how do they not feel isolated again? I, I don't see any solution to the evil causing isolation. 
Well, I think that the us has to be strongly, um, strongly encouraged, like for them, like to see that uh, they're not alone, like that there's that there are more victims. Like you were saying, I, I think that's a good analogy about two people um, experiencing miscarriage in different ways, but then mothers who experience miscarriages can speak to other mothers who have experienced the same thing. And while it's a different child, um, it was their child, they can actually empathize with one another um, in a powerful way. And, and what, leads, what that leads them to is to uh, experience one another's suffering and to bring their suffering into the midst of the community. So um, when we say have mercy on us, we're including the people who have experienced abuse we include the people who have committed the abuse. We include the people who covered up the abuse. And those of us who didn't experience any of those things but see all of it and say, have mercy. Um, so I, I think that the church in her own body experiences all of these, these wounds and the only way she can be healed is by her connectedness to Christ. And the way in which I see the, the church moving forward is by um, gathering everyone um, and even those who can't even speak of their, their suffering and speaking a word to Christ on their behalf. So the, the bishop asked that there would be a mass uh, for reparation for the sins of, of, of priests, bishops, seminarians, whoever, um, and what we're, what we're praying in that is that Christ would have mercy on every single person that these sins touch. And it's not just my walk. It's not just my healing. It's our healing. And uh, in our healing, they experience their healing. Um, and we, we can speak a word on their behalf, even if right now they're like, I would not dare set foot in a church. I wouldn't dare talk to a priest. Um, that's okay. Uh, we pray that they won't stay away forever um, and that this wound may actually uh, be healed by, um, by Christ the doctor in his own way. Um, but, but we can actually implore the mercy of God upon them at, at this time, even from a distance. And I think that's, that's all we can do. There's no other... There seems to be no other option. Yeah, you know, that's the prayer in, in, our, in our Byzantine lectionary on Sunday. Um, I, I, have not, I have not looked at the Greek yet, but it's at the very end of Corinthians. You guys tell me if this is the case or not. I think the, the, very, the very last the two verses of 1 Corinthians is the same as the last two verses of Revelation. Maranatha, right? Come, O Lord, come, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. It's like, it's like a cry for the second coming because... There, there will never be justice in this world. There's like nothing we can do. The, the capacity for evil is so great and the evil that has been committed is so great that we need perfect mercy and perfect justice. And, and we, even as the body of Christ, have done such a horrible job of that, the human dimension of it, that, you know, I, I, I said to my people on Sunday, maybe we should just insert that phrase, Maranatha, like, come Lord Jesus, like, come back. Like, we, we cannot do this without you and we need you to come back. And I thought, why isn't that at the end of more of our ritual prayer? I mean, it just, it, it seems 
that 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 should be that that's a constant reminder that as as hard as we may try to fix things and of course the church is going to try really hard you know we're we're going to we're going to be holding each other accountable now i i immediately went through as a vocations director as a youth and young adult director as a pastor as a consultant of the bishop i immediately started saying in my mind what what positions has god given me and how can i use those positions to hold those in my influence and under my circle of influence accountable, and how, how can I actually work in, in hands-on ways to get those things done? But I think in the end of it, it is what you say, Goebel. It's, it's all handing it back to Christ, and it's, it's Maranatha. It's come, Lord Jesus. It, it's we can't do this without you, and it's, it's a plea, a frustrated, we're, it's an exhausted and frustrated plea for Jesus to come back. And I, I think that St. Paul said it, St. John said it in Revelation. It, it, it needs to be even a part of our daily prayer. It's certainly those of us who I've, I've gotten so many messages from people that saying, I just, I cried all day. I cried through my entire holy hour. I've been crying for days. I don't know what to do. It's like, this is, this is exhausting for the body of Christ. It really is. And it should be. I mean, it, it, this is the, the evil that has been done is, is going to send people to hell. And, and it, and this is, that's the, the, the thing that we want to avoid most as a church. And it's our job not to do that. Um, but anyway, I, that, that's, that's the one word I've been saying for days now is just Maranatha. I don't know what to do, Lord. I'll do what I can, but you know, we need you to come back ASAP. I, uh, we all preached on this this weekend, as we mentioned, and, um, the archbishop had a letter for us to read and I think it was good to acknowledge it, but, um, or to, to read his letter and to speak of these things, but just, just acknowledging it is part of the challenge and again acknowledging it in reality not not acknowledging it as some kind of abstract media phenomenon you know we like uh we like things that are sensational you know that's how the media works make everything sensational but it's not real you know and it's like how do we locate this in in the reality and and that falls into the mystery of sin kind of going back to these earlier things we were talking about and i told the people i said read dante's inferno yeah. Like go there, read Cantos eighteen and nineteen, which is the eighth circle of hell, uh, where you find a lot of clerics. And the reason you find them there is because the the last two layers of hell or circles of hell uh, deal with different forms of malice. Hmm. And the eighth the eighth circle, second to last, is uh, what what Dante calls fraud. It's a kind of malice. And under that, he groups everything from uh, counterfeiters, uh, so simony. So the abuse in the church, but also um, what he calls like pimps and seducers, flatterers. So it's like, it's not concupiscence. It's not people who are just struggling in lust. That's a higher level. But this is actually the people who fraudulently and manipulatively um, have sexual or financial deviation uh, within the church Mm -hmm. in particular. And it's a pretty scary um, rendering. There's these different kind of, there's like 10 different, planes, so to speak, of this circle, but one of them is uh, a lot of priests and even a pope that he puts in there, and they're upside down, uh, and they're buried in the ground, just kind of screaming. The flatterers are, uh, feces is being thrown at them all the time. I mean, it's like, it's a terrifying vision into uh, what actually happens uh, to the soul, because when these acts are committed, it's not just like, they're going to burn someday, but it's like, this is what's going on interiorly, what Dante is speaking to. This is part of the psychology of sin. Is that um, the so I see all of this kind of tied together um, under this kind of malice, and that's what makes it so evil. It's not just sexual deviation, but it's it's the malicious character, the fraudulent character of this that I think is so 
profoundly unsettling. And so I told them, read Dante's Inferno, but don't just stop there. Don't just stop there. Um, read what I think is the greatest response to the darkest hour in the history of the church, which is St. Catherine of Siena, in my mm. opinion. So I said, read the dialogues of Catherine. Uh, and one part I just pulled out here was how God grieves over the Christian people and particularly over his ministers and touches on the subject of the sacrament of Christ's body and the benefit of the incarnation. So right before Catherine gives this beautiful vision of where Jesus gives Catherine this vision of how he is the bridge. Have you heard of this over the chasm? Yeah. This is the her meditation on the state of the church right yeah. before. Um, and it's, it's pretty harrowing. I mean, marvel, Jesus says to Catherine, my sweet daughter, marvel and see how my spouse has defiled her face, has become leprous on account of her filthiness and self-love, and swollen with the pride and avarice of those who feed on their own sin. Mm. So she's got a really scary vision of, uh, but a very honest one, and then gives this beautiful response. So I think just to say, uh, yes, we're walking with a limp, but um, we always have. And uh, Catherine is just this kind of mysterious and unbelievable uh, response for a 33-year-old woman or whatever she was when she passed um, in, in, a, in a far darker hour in the history of the church. Mm. Um, and so anyways, I just offer that to just kind of keep us, don't let the media dictate the terms yeah. on how we're supposed to think about this. We think theologically, and we don't just think existentially. We don't just stay in our experience, but we have to allow our experience to be related into Christ and into history and into these deep mysteries. This is, the, this is for the person who's struggling with this in the pew. Uh, this is not the person who's been abused. They, they have a long, long road ahead of them. But for the average Catholic who's just hearing this and is just feeling defeated or disheartened, um, it's not enough for us to just let let it be on these terms, but it's actually to go, go deeper and to really find Christ. Uh, and what has he done with this in the past? Because this is not the first time this has happened, and it doesn't justify it, but, it, but I, I just think that Dante was hitting on this, Catherine was seeing this, Ezekiel was seeing this, you guys were talking about the, you know, the other prophets. This is nothing new. Uh, you got something there for us? Yeah. Yeah, I was reading uh, Anthony Bloom. Uh, this is a book called nice. Beginning to Pray, yeah. um, and he's doing this interview, and uh, someone asked him the question, looking back on your life, uh, would you say that your Christian faith was influenced by your experience of being an immigrant? And he says, I think this is true. During the revolution, we lost the Christ of the great cathedrals, the Christ of the splendidly architectured liturgies. And we discovered the Christ who is vulnerable just as we were vulnerable. We discovered the Christ who was rejected just as we were rejected. And we discovered the Christ who had nothing at his moment of crisis, not even his friends. And this was similar to our experience. God helps us when there is no one else to help. God is there at the point of greatest tension, at the breaking point, at the center of the storm. And I was just marveling at that because one of our deacons pointed out that so many of these abuses occurred uh, before Vatican II. Um, at the height of beautiful churches, seemingly beautiful liturgies, um, mass, attendance. mass attendance at an all-time high, there was something that was corrupting the whole body from the inside out. And, and a lot of people would say Vatican II caused all of these things. And we're finding more and more that as the records go back, we find that this abuse reached a, a real high point 
both before Vatican II and in the years after. And I don't know what the numbers are now. Um, I don't know where we're at. But there was something going on in that crisis of faith, that crisis of the church. And uh, all it's not that it, I think that liturgies are bad or that you know beautiful architecture is bad. It's that we're experiencing the lonely Christ and the Christ who was abandoned by his friends, uh, the ones who loved him. If you're looking at you know, the success rate of the priests or apostles at the time of the Last Supper, it's like, um, well, they got like a 0.5% because John kind of fled and then came back. Um, but all abandoned him and fled. And Christ is left to face her enemies, his enemies, by himself. And, you know, we're, we're coming up on the last chapter of John 6 in our lectionary this weekend, and the, the word that I'm going to preach on is just, um, will you also leave? Like, as Jesus says after he proclaims the Eucharist, you know, it says that many found this teaching hard, and they left. Yeah. They were scandalized. And he turns to his, his apostles, and he says, will you also leave? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And I, it's not that he had complete faith in the Eucharist. It's that there's really nothing else for us. And... We had, a lady, we had a lady pull her kids out of religious ed because of the, the scandal. And uh, one of the mothers got really upset, and she said, then she needs to have every soccer parent um, fill out a, a, a sexual um, mandatory reporter form. They've got to go through classes because your kid is safer here than it is at soccer practice or at a public school or wherever. And, and I'm kind of like... She's looking for a way to deal with this, this crisis. And the way in which she's dealing with it is, I just need to get away for a while. And I, I'm not going to tell her she's, she's ignorant or how, you know, you're, you're making a bad decision. You do what you think is necessary. But the church is still going to be here 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And will there still be scandals? There's going to be new scandals like two months from now. Yeah. Three years from now, I, my, my solution is have every single bishop pull every single record and put it all on display. Mm-hmm. It would be, it would be a, a moment of, of sheer disclosure, and we would see many of these sins in, in, their, in their depravity, but it would be over with. Instead of Iowa coming out in you know maybe six months or two years, they'll bring right. a grand jury up in Florida or Colorado or wherever. Just get it done with, and then um, the priests who were guilty will be rightfully shamed, yeah. and the bishops who covered it up will 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 either be yeah having to make apologies or uh, make excuses. I don't know, and the priests who the problem is the priests who are still living who are innocent. And these, some of these accusations um, are against priests who are still active, and some of them, uh, well, they weren't proven. Yeah, they so have to be I, credible, do do? credible I mean, allegations, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, that's, that's the reason why I don't think they disclose all of it. Yeah. But I think the church just needs to say, we're sinful. We've been sinful since the beginning. And... The only thing to be done about it is to be chastised by Christ and, and follow him yeah. more wholeheartedly 
um, more poorly. Yeah. See, that's one thing I've, I've been thinking about because I, I know that this can bring about a witch hunt and maybe I'm just, it's still so fresh in my mind, but you know, uh, Usterman asked me the other day, like, what, what would you do if you were falsely accused? What if someone now in, in just came in and, and was just so mad they falsely accused you of something because they needed to do something? And I like, I, I kind of prayed through that and I sat there and he said it and I was like, honestly, like, again, maybe it's just such an open wound right now, but, but I'd, I, I'd be okay. Like Christ was falsely accused. Christ was killed. Many, many martyrs were killed for false, false accusations. I think it's at least a good thing, not, not that we need to you know, open up all the files so that even the non-credible ones are released, because I think that's just unwise. But there is something about when someone, it happened the other day, you just yells at me in the street, you know, keep your boy away from that one, just because right my collar, you know, just walking down the street. And they were in a car, and they were, you know, didn't confront me face-to-face. They just yelled it out their window. And I just thought, you know, this is, is honestly... This is a very obvious public penance, and in, in my mind, I, I don't mind if I, can, if I can take a little bit of the, the pain away from the, those who have suffered within the body of Christ for the abuse. Like, that's actually my question for, like, for victims. If you're a victim, would it help? Would it help to see other innocent, good priests and good Catholics, all the other members of the body of Christ, would it help to see them doing penance? Like if it's done in an obvious way? Like, I, I, I would love to see, one of the things that annoys me about the church is just how, how we do, how we, in a sense, live so well because of the, because of the status, in a sense, when a way people give us. And it should not be odd to see a priest working in the back of a homeless shelter or cleaning bathrooms at a homeless shelter. That should be totally normal. But I guarantee you, if I walked down to the Samaritan house and started cleaning bathrooms in my collar, people would be like, oh, Father, why are you doing this? Like why not? You know, it, it's just. I, I but I don't know if that actually helps. It, it's just it's something to do. Like I actually understand the soccer mom. Like I or, or the, this teacher. It's like we have to do something. You hear about these things. What can I do? We're a sacramental people. We're a sacramental church. What can I do as a result? What can I do because I've heard of this and I think we actually need stuff to do. I need stuff to do. And I think that even the, the people who say, "How do I react to this? What can I do in a sacramental, physical, tangible, visceral way? What can I do because of this?" I'm with you on the point about a public penance, and we've been talking about this the last few days, about what do we do, you know? But I'm not with you about what you said about false, falsely accused. If you were to be falsely accused, uh, I, I couldn't say that. Yeah. You're a better man than me. Well, no, I'm not I, saying that at the time. It's probably my worst nightmare. And uh, we live under the shadow of that because since 2003, with the Dallas Charter which effectively destroyed relationships between priests and bishops in the United States. I'll mm-hmm. say that because um, Cardinal Dulles said that to the bishops. Because basically what happened in 2003, if we're just totally honest, is this all broke, and the bishops are like, we've got to do something, and so we're just going to crack everything down. But what happened is you're guilty until proven innocent, and you're never really proven right. innocent. So you're just gone. Right. Now... I would pray to God that if that happened, I would have the grace to eventually get to the point of what you said, which is to say, somebody has to suffer reparation for these sins, and maybe that's us, our reputation, our honor, everything. But the thought of losing my honor as a man, that's just, that's like the worst thing I could, I could think of right now, just to be totally honest. I, I think that if that happens, it would be absolutely unjust and therefore evil. And yeah. so I'm not saying it'd be a good thing at all. Right. It would be absolutely evil to be falsely accused. It would be evil to, to have to undergo that and have our name, you know, smudged like that for no reason at all. Having a good priest 
his name, but I, I, I do think it's, it's in those moments since there are those who have suffered that, that has to be the only message. This happened to Christ too, you know, and therefore he will give you the ability to suffer this. Again, it would be evil, but if it happens, there, there's, there's a light even in that dark, dark moment of that's what happened to Christ. I mean, it's an odd, it's an odd prescription to, to, to do at this time, but the, um, the movie Calvary, um, yeah. that's what he says to the priest. He says, I'm not killing you, Father, because you're a bad priest. Yeah. If you killed a bad priest, no one would bat an eye. But if you killed a good priest, maybe then people would start to pay attention. Yeah. And um, I think that there have been guilty priests who have been freed or have skated by or somehow found, um, yeah, like refuge, I don't know where, um, and continued their perpetrations. There have been other priests who have who have been... Um, falsely accused and have borne the burden of 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 being a a victim for this crisis and to me it's like i i don't know that uh simply having more innocent priests um picked off is the answer the answer is justice and mercy justice that those who have done wrong should be um, should be prosecuted, and uh, if need be, like um, yeah, punished, like uh, in whatever whatever way the 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 justice system deems fit, um, and then those who are innocent uh, to continue to do the work of reconciliation, and uh, and I think that it can, it can be done. I think those who are those who are innocent and have uh, have been um, falsely accused are rare, but it does happen, and there there hasn't been an adequate uh, cooperation between the bishops and the priests. I think since the Dallas Charter, I would completely echo what Father John was saying, and I think it, the reason why they wanted to make a powerful statement is because no one believed the credibility of the bishops. So then they 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 made it more uh, powerful. They made their their ruling more powerful. And what they lost was not only not only their priests, but I think even now, like, what is the Dallas Charter? Like, you you put a big carpet over all of the sins from the past, and now that this has come up again, and we said in our letter, like, um, we've been in compliance since 2003. Well, none of these allegations aren't, they're not addressing after 2003, they're addressing from years ago. So I, I think we just fall upon the mercy of the, the people and just say we have done wrong like we have we have been corrupted and uh we need repentance even the bishops priests i i do think that and i i hope i I didn't speak wrong or you guys heard me wrong but i i do think that the the role of good priests is just to be good priests i I think it to, to simplify our life to make sure that we are living lives as holiness i mean christ needs us and he needs the good people in the world to heal a broken church, absolutely. I just, I, I, I want to do something like that. Mom pulled her kids out, and it just felt like she was doing something. It was probably such a relief to say, I can't have my kids, you know, in this. And I don't, I don't think she mistried at the school. I seriously doubt it. She just needed to do something. And I, I just feel the same way. I need to do something. And, and I, when, when I put myself in the place of, of someone abused, I just think there's nothing I can do enough to, to assuage that. But, yeah. but God is at work. I can't, I can't heal them. God can. Jesus can. And, and, and it's 
realize it's not really my place since I can't. I, how do I do something so that they can look at me, a member of, of the clergy within the church, and how can they look at me and say, maybe it's selfish, but they can look at me and say, he's helping, not yeah. hurting. Yeah. Keep wearing your collar. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. You have, to keep wearing, you, got, you have to keep wearing the collar so that people become rehabilitated to the idea of this man's not a, a, a pedophile. Yeah. Like, there were men that wore that same collar and who did those horrible acts. So also there were others that continued to wear the collar and suffer the abuse that, of the brothers, you know, like, that their brothers incurred because of their sinfulness. But, I mean, the, the, I don't think we need to put on another penance other than we are, we are rightfully shamed. And anytime I go somewhere in my collar, people are going to look at me and make a judgment does he look like someone who would abuse children? And I have to suffer that. Yeah. Can I shift the topic just slightly? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, in terms of one of the challenges uh, that we face with this scandal is just getting clarity um, around what, what exactly are we talking about? Because, again, one of my concerns is that the media just freaks us out and the grand jury report just freaks us out and it's just so overwhelming and the kind of the emotional response is so is so it's so complete and so devastating that it just feels like we're just paralyzed you know yeah. you just feel paralyzed yeah and so i'd like to kind of break down a little bit how i see this I, I basically see three scandals in one here okay number one is the scandal of abuse number two is the scandal of homosexuality in the priesthood and number three is the cowardice uh and the deception and the fraud of the american bishops mm-hmm. and those are three different issues that have been kind of lumped together um, pretty and just kind of tied together because they are tied together but I think in our minds we need to kind of separate them a bit abuse is totally different than homosexuality which is totally different than the cover-up and the scandal Mm -hmm. and the fraudulent character of some of these bishops uh, in the United States in the last 50 years so we've been speaking a lot about abuse and victimhood in these things and I think that we're all in agreement on um, the, the absolutely disgusting and horrific nature of, uh, of all kinds of abuse, especially uh, sexual abuse of children. Um, there's just, this is just unquestionable, and, uh, and it's, just, yeah, it's, just, it's just the most perverted and disgusting thing uh, we can think of. We're in agreement on that. We're all in agreement on the fact that that needs to become publicly into light and that there needs to be, uh, the secular authority needs to act, uh, and this, thing, this needs to be happening immediately. Yeah. When you get to the second and the third, though, that's where we start to kind of dumb it down, and you don't hear as much conversation about this, especially number two. Uh, there's a great article um, by Monsignor Stephen Pope, Charles. Charles Pope, excuse me, and the article was published in the Nas- National Catholic Register. It's called Active Homosexuality in the Priesthood is at the Root of This Crisis. And basically what he spells out is to say, yes, this is a crisis, this is a, a, a crisis of sexual scandal, there is pedophilia involved in it. But then he throws out some numbers from 2004. He said the John Jay report, so this was the big report on sexual abuse of minors in the by Catholic priests, which was commissioned by the bishops, found that 81% of the victims, this is back in 2003, 81% of the victims were male, and 78% of all victims were post-pubescent. So though legally still minors, they were sexually mature in a, in a physical sense. So the large majority of cases involved attraction by homosexuals to young men who, though legally minors, were physically and sexually mature males, not children. Yeah. This is not pedophilia. 
it is homosexual attraction. Regarding the sexual abuse and harassment of seminarians or priests by bishops, it's obvious that's 100%. So basically what he's saying, Bishop Marlino also said this in his letter to the, priests in, or to the faithful in Madison, is that um, active homosexuality in the priesthood is, like he says, at the root of this crisis. It's not just um, a, a problem of pedophilia or of... Uh, but the sexual dis- deviance um, that is being revealed is part of a deeper systemic problem, which was in the 1960s and 70s, principally, that these gay subcultures uh, developed and flourished. They were certainly there before. They've certainly been there after, but they became so mainstream in seminary life that um, they either were condoned by bishops, uh, forwarded by bishops such as McCarrick, or uh, just simply kind of ignored. And uh, that's, this is a major part of it, and we don't want to talk about this, and this is why the McCarrick thing kind of got downplayed by the media in a way, was because um, we don't want to talk about the fact that uh, homosexuality in the priesthood is, uh, is absolutely destructive and is impossible for actively homosexual men uh, to live lives of chaste celibacy as priests. Yeah, and just to define act, actively means right. practicing homosexuality. Right. Now that is absolutely... And, Living and, out sexual acts, And, and yeah. uh, Monsignor Pope makes this very yeah, clear. There, uh, there are... There are many, many people in the church, in the priesthood, who, who live with same-sex same attraction uh, and have found deep and beautiful healing and live chastity in a very beautiful way. So it's not to say that the attraction itself uh, is the problem. It's the action. Yeah. And then it's the gay culture, and then it's the, the creation of this whole system of uh, sexual deviance and, and these things that is intimately tied to it. So I just think... Uh, that helped me to understand that um, the first one, it, it's not all about just abuse. It's not a thousand cases of pedophilia, but it's, it's disgusting and horrible pedophilic acts, but connected into this larger network of men who rejected the church's teaching uh, on human sexuality and created these, uh, these awful cultures that were contrary to the uh, priestly life and to, uh, and to just basic... Uh, Catholic sexual ethics. So Pope's whole thing was all of these policies we're laying out, he's like, there's one policy. It's called the Sixth Commandment. Yeah, It's a great line. Yeah, It's just we have to get serious about chastity. Yeah. Which brings me to my final point on this, and then I'll pass it off. From Catching Foxes, mm. did you guys listen to? I didn't. Okay, no. so I love these guys. So Luke, Gomer, you guys are great. But Gomer, I'm going to take you on on one point. They did a podcast on McCarrick in July with J.D. Flynn. And he basically was saying, he was exasperated, he was disgusted, but he just was like, the problem is his celibacy. These guys are all alone by themselves, and we need married priests. And it's like, that's not the answer. So Gomer, that's not the answer. I love... I love your fury and your wrath. I love the way you're, you're thinking about this. I love the boldness that the Catching Foxes guys had in acknowledging that priestly culture is systemically broken. It's, it's dysfunctional and it's broken. It cannot be, it, 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 we can't just continue as we are. And they're seeing that, but the answer is not to get rid of celibacy. And that's, that's kind of the shortcut that everybody's kind of talking about now. Because basically to say, as, as a friend of ours said over Pranza this weekend, another priest, he said, if you think that pedophilia is derived from celibacy, then it's basically like, okay, Gomer, how long with you not having sex with your wife before you want to have sex with children? That's mm-hmm. basically what you're saying. 
uh, to say that withholding from sexual acts creates this kind of destructive, psychological, and totally deranged um, uh, psychotic sexual state. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And uh, I think they're saying it out of just, again, being exasperated yeah. laymen, look, working in the church saying what is But I just I want to make that clear and say I love you guys and your, your podcast is awesome, but this is not the response, yeah. you know. You know, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I think that when you, it, the, the abuse of minors in the church by men is either the, the immensely psychological disorder of pedophilia, or I think in some cases it is a situation where you have like in prison and in war, where you have men who are not same-sex attracted and they use the sexual act in order to control and to abuse. And, and so you see this in prisons, you see it in war. And I think that there is a situation where you have men who, who in, for one reason or another, feel forced into celibacy, whether it's by their parents, by the church, whatever it is, and they, they have no control. And it's, it's the same thing as like an eating disorder or, or as cutting, self-harm, that, that there's a grasping at control. And, and when you're put in a situation where you have access to vulnerable people like you would in prison or war, that, that there's an act of control. The other thing I think is that it, it, is, it is something that the church needs to look at, and that is that when you have a situation where, where celibacy is the norm, like it always is in the church, like it always will be in the church, when you have a situation where there's, whether it's in monasteries and priests or whatever it is, in East or West, you have a situation where, where within celibacy and also that has a, 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 a level, at least a perceived community and also perceived authority, you're going to have men that are severely disordered, where the pedophiles you know, have commitment issues, have same-sex attraction, whatever it is. They're going to, they're going to find an attraction to a life of celibacy that nobody questions, and that is the life of a priest or a monk. Nobody questions it. So you, you, I can see the attraction of someone that, that, that has those struggles. They say, I can rest in the priesthood, so they're attracted to this, and I think that's where where the bishops and vocations directors, seminaries, that that's where that has to happen is, is to make sure that there's a a protection of the church from men who who coming in and just want a place to rest. A old priest used to say, three meals a day, no heavy lifting." A priest can live very very well as a priest and and not be a pious man at all, not be a prayerful man at all. And I think that that's where there needs to be help in that. And I think that's also where lay people coming in. Cause I, I know lay people that can spot, spot that dysfunction from a mile away. And I, I hope vocation directors and clerics and bishops can too. But when, when I, when I formulated one of my Facebook posts after this, and I just said, what can we do for penance? I had two of my secular friends help me write it. I just, I like, I wanted to sit and discuss with them. I've loved the fact that I can sit and discuss with you guys. I think that's the advantage of this podcast. We had have three of us talking about our instances, but there needs to be, in a sense, an opening up of the church to those impressions, especially from lay people. Um, Rosemary Sullivan, who's, who's the, um, who, uh, I forget her exact title, executive director of the N- um, NCDVD, National um, Catholic Vocation Directors Convention, she, she, her son is now a newly ordained priest, and she wrote a beautiful letter coming from someone who works with the bishops, someone who works with vocation directors, and is the mother of a priest. I thought, that is the most amazing perception uh, of someone who has, is going to have, and she's a layperson, obviously, she, she has a good perception of the church because she, she loves a priest. It's her son. She works with bishops and she works with vocation directors. Pretty much everywhere where there's issues, she has her finger on the pulse. I hope they utilize her. The other thing I've realized recently is that it's going to take the church forever, as it does everything, to, to get on board with bringing lay people into these things. But J.D. Flynn, among other lay people, have done an amazing job of using journalism. 
I mean, he came out with an, another article after after all of this, just talking about Newark and the scandals in Newark and the Cardinal McCarrick and then these these all these gay priests meeting together for cocktail hours in rectories. And he wrote this great article on it. I think he, he's as a layman, he's not asking any anybody's permission to this. He's just doing it. He's writing articles using journalism to give a lay perspective and and, and lay help into this the scandal. I thought, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I had a good conversation with uh, a, a layman from Denver, and he. He was saying to his to his sons, like, if you find yourself in a position where you are a victim of abuse, you punch whoever it is in the face, and then you say, if you ever do that again, like, I mean, like, I'm going to tell, but like, don't ever, don't ever think about doing that again. And then you go tell, you know, trusted adult, uh, whoever. Uh, but his question was, um, what do we, what what if they become a seminarian? That happens to them. What if they're over eighteen? And somebody tries to um, seduce them yeah. um, into that kind of life, and my my response to him was, "I hope you know that that kid, your son, could call any one of a number of priests that he knows, um, even if it was a member of our own association. Um, that if he called another member of this association, we would not." you know, kind of form ranks and just kind of say, this kid's not telling the truth. Uh, we would take it extremely seriously, take it to the proper authorities, and we probably wouldn't rest until justice was served. Um, and I think that, just to John's point, it's not like we need wives so that somebody can go and tell our wives what, our, what the men did. Rather, we need stronger brotherhood that would actually say to another brother, you're sick and you need help, and you're going to go to jail, and we're going to love you. Um, and without that, without that, I think we, we diminish the, the priestly role in being someone who has the custody and care of the whole community and not just of his own particular family. Uh, there's a unique love that comes from celibacy, which when it's perverted and broken, is devastating because they use their power as a father to abuse one of their own children. But when it's lived properly, is actually the conduit by which others can find healing even in their pain. So uh, we need stronger priestly culture. And, you know, somebody said a long time ago, well, I think it's good you guys became companions so that you can keep an eye on one another. Yeah. And it's like, that's not the reason why we became <laughs> companions. Right. The reason why we became companions is because Jesus has consecrated us and formed us into a brotherhood, um, and we're trying to live some expression of, our, of, our, of our, the bond of priestly life. Um, but as a, as a uh, I don't know, like secondary cause, yeah, we keep an eye on each other, but you don't get married so that your wife can keep an eye on right. you. You get married because you love somebody. You, get, you become a priest because you love Jesus and you love the people of God. However, or why ever, these, these, whoever it was, not just the abusers, but also the ones who covered up, why they became uh, priests needs to become apparent to them once again because yeah. they've, they've certainly lost their first love. You know, um, sorry. I, I also think that that is one of the greatest goods and the greatest hopes that have come out of the scandals in the early 2000s was that now i think it would be absurd for any of us to say we 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 were we are not going to we are not going to cover up 
the evil done by a brother priest. But I think back in the middle of the last century, that probably was the case. I would say the vast majority of priests now would go to their brother who was an abuser and say, I love you, brother, but we have to turn you in. We have to do this. Like, I want you to be healed, but I want the church to be healed. We have to turn you in. Like, the vast majority of priests are going to do that. I don't think that was the case in the middle of the last century. I think most priests would have covered it up. And I mean, just because there was no examples of, of this be done, being done well. There was probably no examples of really good priestly community. There was no good examples of, of within the fraternity of holding each other accountable, at least from what I've read. And But that's so different now. That I think the vast majority would assist in the good of the church rather than just the good of the clergy. I think I agree with both you guys. I think that this scandal is like, I hope the final torpedo to sink the ecclesial vision, vision of like a triumphalistic church. Right. You know, yep. It's kind of grandiose, altar and throne, so just tied to temporal power. Because that's what that movie Calvary was all about. Was It was just everything was tied. It was showing that. And it was really beautiful. The movie... Um, but it's like, no more. No more triumphalistic church. Yeah. We've got to go back to the apostolic age. We have to. And that means priestly life has to look like that as well. Yeah. Uh, it can't be cufflinks and golf. No offense to Mike Rapp, who's golfing right now. <laughs> right? Golf's fine. But it can't be the, the, no more of the bourgeois life yep. anymore. Absolutely. Um, because when you put together self-reliance, a kind of a bourgeois, worldly lifestyle, and then kind of a managerial suave which gets combined and then put into frankly a lot of the bishops of the last 50 years in the United States you get exactly the the problem here yep. which is there's no men with chess there's no men of courage and most importantly there's no men of vulnerability and, and accountability yep. because you don't just go out and rape a child right it's years of submarining uh, and disgusting you know uh, actions or yep. life that then plays out. And so it's like, uh, we, we really feel very convicted that priestly fraternity is the response. The rebuilding of priestly fraternity is the response to the, to the, to the destruction of priestly culture, which has happened in the last 50 years. Yeah. I think we're all committed to that. Yep. But we need bishops now to back us. And we need, we need priests to say, we need a new generation of priests who will say, I can't do this alone. I don't trust myself. And it's too, it's too difficult. The world has changed too much. I don't have the temporal power. Uh, where I can just kind of glide on that and kind of be comfortable. we got to get back to it. And then the lay people also need to back us on that because we're still spread too thin. Are you willing to sacrifice daily mass at your parish so that we can live in community and have a healthy life? Mm. Yeah. Are you, are you ready for that? Hmm. I don't know if they are. Yeah. But that's where we're going, and we got to be together. Yeah. And, we gotta, and it's, it doesn't just mean put us in the same place, but we got to live a shared life. we got to start living like a family of brothers. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I, uh, I tell you what, I was so grateful to be with the guys um, this weekend because I was like, there we were on Friday night pulling together after the storms had passed of the last week and just we're in it together. Yeah. And we're saying, now what, now what do we do? Yeah. How do we even, and we're working through it together and we're sharing a little bit on this today and I hope it's, it's kind of helpful. Uh, we don't have the answers, yeah. but we do know that uh, Christ is there and he's leading us and... Uh, we're going to get through it. Yeah. A, a point of, of beautiful hope is that somebody, somebody Facebook messaged me and says, you know, I was abused by a priest when I was young. And they said, I, I left the church. But what brought me back and brought me hope and make me now solidly in the church is, was one good priest. 
you know, one bad priest ruined it all for me, but one good priest brought me back, gave me hope and, and reorganized my priorities. And I would say, you know, the same thing to lay people, you know, you're going, there's going to be people to leave the church over this. And it's really hard to, you know, think negatively of them for doing that. But I think that there is one good lay person they work with, one good Catholic who can say, you know, honestly, I don't know why I'm staying in the church. There's not, there's not that a lot I can explain, but I do love our Lord. I love the Eucharist. I, I think this is the truth. This is the church of the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I'm convicted to, to persevere and remain in this without judgment of those who really struggle. But I, I think that one good message in Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can work through one good priest and one good person if, if we just stay strong and rely on Christ, surrender to his power. And, uh, you know, th- that's how Christ has worked for 2,000 years, and he's going to continue to work that way in his church into the future. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I got a lot more, a lot of thoughts on this, but I, I think the, the questions are now emerging in a new way. Yeah. And it's good to just to affirm the people who are shook by this, who are pulling their kids out of religious education. If you find yourself listening to it, we're not going to sit here and, and tell you, no, you need to be subservient, you right. know. You need to just, you need to suffer this. And if, and if, uh, and if that means pulling away okay uh we don't you know we don't condone that but but we understand it and um everybody has to ask the question again what is the church yeah and where is christ how do i find him because we can't we can't settle for this kind of sociological vision of the, that the church is just an aggregate of her members it's just a collection of right. people the church is the sinless spotless bride of christ ephesians chapter four she is without sin yeah this does not penetrate to the church mary is the heart of the church and mary is where Christ is in the church, right. right? She is the neck, as the medieval said, to the head, which is Christ. And so we got to dig deeper, yeah. but we got to ask that question, and that's okay. And I think we just invite people to, to struggle with these questions um, and to not be afraid of the struggle yeah. because, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I never thought of that before, but you're right. I think one of the things one of the things that we want to do is when we hear these stories, we want to comfort these children that were abused, and we can't. I mean, m- many of them are, are are older now. There's nothing that we can do. But I, I think calling upon the mother of God to be a mother and to comfort them, you know, the, she, they can flee to her protection. They can flee to her comfort, and and uh, you know, she's she's the the one who can comfort in places that we can't who can heal in the places we can't who intercede and 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 you know allow our son to give those graces where so yeah yeah call upon the mother of god pray lots of hail mary's it is truly proper so allow allow her to do what we can't do you have any final thoughts gobel or should we close with a prayer yeah, I'm done. he's done we're all done all right olaf you want to close us yeah sure in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen lord thank you for this time thank you for your church Thank you for your salvation that you've offered to us. Thank you for the freedom that you've given us to be in your image and likeness. And thank you for giving us the gifts that we can pass on to others that make the church so beautiful and give us so much hope. Thank you for allowing us a role in the healing where damage has been done. Thank you for allowing us to surrender to you in the places that we can't control, that we can't fix. Thank you for the beautiful gift of priesthood and the episcopacy. Thank you for the beautiful gift of of our service and our ability to do penance, our ability to to suffer along with the suffering church. And please help us to always have ears to hear what you are doing and what you ask us to do, to hear the cries of those who are hurt by us and to receive your strength and your commitment, your healing, your humility, and your confidence as we move forward. 
Please bless the hands and the voices of those who are healers and let them bring true healing. Please continue to let all of us in the church continue to move forward with hope and strength always under your banner. For your holy, our God, we give glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Amen. Maranatha. Thank you, guys. Uh, difficult one today, but uh, grateful for your uh, your thoughts. And uh, just to thank everybody who has uh, written to us, emails, uh, Facebook, Instagram. We're really grateful for uh, people and for the encouragement to to do this podcast. Yeah, and, uh, So we hope that in some ways helpful. Um, we're grateful for your prayers, and uh, we pray in heart for you. We pray daily for you. Uh, listen, and uh, yeah, again, hope that uh, hope that this is in some way uh, a bit of a, a hopeful and encouraging. Uh, word in a time of, uh, of great darkness and confusion, but we trust in Christ. And Maranatha. please do give us feedback. We do want to hear from you what, what we can do and what you've heard. Thank you. Wonderful. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next week.